All right. If you have, good morning again, uh, if you have your Bible, uh, open to Romans chapter 3. So for you parents in the room, or, or if you're just visiting for the first time, either way, um, this is what we do on Sunday mornings. We, uh, we typically, or no, we always study through books of the Bible. And so in the fall and spring, usually it's uh, a New Testament book. This year it's Romans. Um, we've done Ephesians, Hebrews, uh, lots. And in the, if there are your students over here in the summertime, um, it's a, that's a cool time to be in Auburn as well. We, we're usually in an Old Testament book, so um, that's, that's fun. And on Wednesday nights in our midweek Bible study, uh, sometimes it's more topical. This particular school year, we're studying through the, the parables of Jesus. So that's what we do. But we're in this study through the book of Romans this, this year on Sunday mornings. And so we are in the middle of the chapter uh, uh, in Romans 3, in the middle of the chapter. But, but even with that, um, the passage we're going to study today is actually finally coming to the end of the opening section of this book, a section that began all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, Students, if, you, if you've been here, you know that, and we've mentioned this several times, that from the very opening words of the book, even when verse 2, you know, Paul, an apostle, verse 2, set apart for the gospel of God. I mean, from the very opening words of, of this letter, Paul has made it clear that this letter that he's writing to Rome is about the gospel. That's the theme of this whole letter. So for the first, for the first eight chapters of the book, um, Paul is going to outline and explain uh, the gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ in as complete and thorough a way, a way as anywhere you're going to find in, in the Bible. I, in fact, probably in, in more uh, thorough and, and complete way than anywhere else you'll find. And then in chapter 9 and really beginning in chapter 12, Paul is going to uh, spend the rest of the letter talking about how the gospel ought to have an impact in the people who profess to believe it, who repent and profess to believe that gospel. What kind of change the gospel makes in the lives of someone who has repented of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ as Lord. So in short, whether it's explaining or applying, this whole letter is about the gospel. And for several weeks now, um, we have been in the first three chapters of this letter where Paul, in order to set up the beauty and help the reader see the beauty of uh, the work of Christ for us and for our salvation. For these first three chapters, to set that up, he has been laying out the unvarnished bad news. Like it's just it's not it's pretty bleak. Next week, when we come to the uh, the end of chapter three and the passage you'll study next week, uh, Paul's going to begin that passage. Uh, near the front in verse 23, sort of reiterating the theme of this first section when he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But in that passage for next week, he's going to say that in order to finally lay out and begin laying out the good news of the gospel uh, in the very next verse. So the good news is coming soon, very soon. But this morning, <laughs> we're going to look at the conclusion of this opening section. Uh, this is going to be Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. And although there isn't a whole lot of positive in this for us to hear, I want to remind you for one last time, we don't need to overlook 
or miss the grace and the goodness of God to us in this text. Because without His merciful revelation to us here, even though the revelation is how sinful we are, without that, we would never know our need for the Savior that He's provided. So, it's bad news, but it's a good thing that He tells us. So, that being said, let's look at today's passage, Romans 3. Uh, I'll read, you follow along, verse 9, read through verse 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, and he begins this whole long list of Old Testament quotations, Quote Psalm 14, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He quotes Psalm 5, their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. He quotes Psalm 140, the venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. He quotes Proverbs 1.16, Their feet are swift to shed blood. And he quotes, he quotes Psalm, uh, Isaiah 59, In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. In Psalm 36, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know... That whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray. Lord, what we just read and every other text that we will consider as we look closely at this one, We confess our faith that it is your holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, clear, authoritative, and necessary word. And so we, recognizing that, ask you to please give us eyes to see the truth in this passage. Would you give us minds to understand it clearly? Would you please give us hearts that would embrace the truth that you reveal to us here, not reject it, not to see it as insignificant, but to see it for what it is. And would you give us wills to obey whatever this text admonishes us to do? Would you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying in the Word? And would you give me the help that I need to teach? In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is not a really long passage. Uh, in fact, if you, if, you, if, you just, if you take out that long litany of Old Testament quotations which Paul just quotes, quotes, quotes without any kind of commentary attached to it. If you just took that out and just took what Paul's words, really our passage is only three or four verses long, but there's still plenty for us to see um, and, and, and to understand what he's doing here. Just remember that in chapter 1, Paul was talking about the Gentile world and talk about, talked about how God had revealed himself to the Gentiles in creation, but they have rejected the revelation that God gave to them, they have gone their own way, they have sinned, and they are under the judgment of God unless they repent. Then in chapter 2, 
He does the same with the Jews. In fact, they've, they've received even greater revelation from God in His Word, in, in, in the law, and in the covenants, in the promises. They know with specificity the will and purpose of God, but they have also misused the revelation that God had given them. They too have sinned and are under the judgment of God unless they repent. And you can hopefully see when you come to the passage today that we just read how he's sort of just tying all of that up into one last summary about our sin before he brings the good news of the gospel in the next passage. I think, I think what we, in what we just read, uh, Paul teaches us some very basic things. Things that if you're a professing believer in this room, I, I, that I, I don't have any doubt that you know already. In fact, if you believe the gospel, I'm sure of it. If you understand the gospel, I'm sure that you understand everything that he's going to teach us here. But I also don't have any doubt that these are things we need to hear again and again and again. It's always good to be reminded of the truth. There is no new truth in the Christian faith. So if you're taking notes, here's what I'd like us to see. I'll say it ahead of time, then we'll walk through it. First, in verses 9 through 18, so the, the vast majority of this passage um, it, it, it is, is about the power of sin. Um, that's what the bulk of this passage is about, the power of sin, verses 9 to 18. Uh, this is the point that Paul's making in that long list of Old Testament quotes. And since for any preacher or teacher, uh, the point of the text, the text should determine the lesson. Since this is where Paul spends the most of his time in this passage, this is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. Um, but then second, looking at verse 19, we're going to see what he says about the penalty of sin. That's one we'll need to think about carefully, but not because of his point, but how he makes the point. It's very, very interesting. And then thirdly and finally, we'll look at verse 20 and the purpose of the law, and especially the role that the law plays in how a person can stand justified and righteous before God. This is basic Christian truth, uh, but, but that we never graduate from. So let's dive in and see uh, what Paul has to say about uh, the power of sin, which he spends the greatest amount of time here defending. You can see how Paul is transitioning from what he's been talking about in chapter 2, that is the Jews, to now drawing it all together to teach what is true for all, all people. Having talked about the Gentiles in chapter 1, having talked about the Jews in chapter 2, he's now pulling back to talk about all people generally, to assert what is true for all people. So look at what he says in verse 9. What then are we Jews any better off? So he's still talking about the Jews right there, but notice how he transitions. He doesn't, he doesn't stay on the Jews. He moves right away to everybody. Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, A-L-L, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. There he's saying, I've talked about the Jews, and I've talked about the Gentiles both, so now let's just admit, Jews and Gentiles, we're talking about everybody. Like, if it's true for Jews and Gentiles, that's everybody. But what is he saying is true for everybody? Look again at verse 9. And note that phrase at the end of the verse, under sin. All, Jews and Greeks, are under sin. What, what, what does that mean to say that we're under sin? What, what kind, that kind of language, under sin, uh, is, is one of... Many like it 
similar to it that Paul uses to talk about or to describe the power of sin over a person in a person. All right? How do, how do we know that? How do we know that that's what that means? A couple of things. First of all, notice that in verse 9, he does not say sins with an S on the end, like a plural, as if he's talking about specific acts of sin, things we do. He's not talking about sins, but he's talking about sin, singular, sin as, 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 as something that we are under, he says. And so the second thing to note here is also, if you're just familiar with Romans, the power of sin and the influence of sin as a power in us and over us is a very prominent theme in this letter as a whole. And this is just the first in instance of it here. Uh, as sin as a power, as something that explains why we do the things that we do. Now, as Brother Al used to always say, that we're not, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, right? That, that, that there, is a, there is a power in us that, that moves us to do the things that we do. And Paul says that is sin as a power, not just as, a, as an act of disobedience. And so, for example, this same phrase, under sin, appears again later in the book in, in Romans 7.14. You don't have to turn there, but you could jot the, the reference down. You can if you want. But in Romans 7.14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Sold under sin. And what does so, if you're familiar with Romans 7, I'll just go ahead and stake my claim here. For those of you familiar with Romans 7, today, I, I believe Romans 7 is, Paul is reflecting on himself before Christ as an unbeliever. Ask me in another month, I may have a different opinion. I've, but right now, I think that's what he's talking about. But what is he saying in Romans 7? I think he's describing his life before Christ and, and, and talking about the sin that dwelled in him as a power causing him to do what he knew was wrong. He says later in that same chapter in verse 23, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive. Listen to that language. Making me captive to to the law of sin that dwells in my members. That's, that's 714. So the same phrase in 3.9 and 7.14, like the bookends. And all between those two places are similar ideas that are communicating the same thing. So, for example, in chapter 5, verse 21, Paul talks about sin reigning over us. Reigning over us. He says that again in chapter 6, verse 12. In chapter 6, verse 6, and several other times in that chapter, he talks about people being enslaved to sin. In 6.14, he talks about sin having dominion over us, which is why you have other verses like chapter 6, verse 18 and 22, in which Paul talks about sin not just being something we need to be forgiven of, but something we need to be freed from. We need to be freed from sin. So sin is a power in us, a power over us, an influencer, which in this life, until we see Jesus face to face, it will always be that in us. 
Even as believers, you can read about that. Even if you take Romans 7 as Paul as an unbeliever, you still have Galatians 5. You still have Galatians 5 when, when Paul says that, that, that the, 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 the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. Still, for a believer, sin is an influencer in us to cause us to walk in a way contrary to the ways of God. But the difference is that believers have been freed from that power so, so that not, that, not that it no longer exists in us, but we now, by the Holy Spirit, have a greater power in us by which to resist it and to walk in obedience. But Paul's point here is that apart from grace, we are enslaved. We, sin has dominion over us. It reigns over us. We, and it's what he means in verse 9 that he says we are under sin. And in the litany of Old Testament passages that he quotes in the verses that follow, Paul, Paul lays out three ways that sin as a power over us and in us, is displayed. First, the first is that its power is universal. In verse 9, he already said, all are under sin, none accepted. But look too in verses 10, and 10 to 12, quoting different psalms, he says, none is righteous, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good, not even one. And if you skip down to the end of the passage, he's going to stay on that train in verse 19 when he talks about every mouth being stopped and the whole world being held accountable to God. It's universal, but it gets worse. Because the second thing Paul highlights in this, in this litany of verses about sin's power is not just that it's universal, it is deadening. It's deadening. And you, you might have to look carefully here, but I see it in, um, I see it in verse 13, in which he quotes Psalm 5:9. It's the first part of verse 13 when he says, "Their throat is an open grave." What an interesting image. Their throat is an open grave. What, what, what does that, what kind of, what is that communicating to you? Like, G, here's the way I think about it. Jesus told us, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the image of, of an open mouth being an open grave is the image of a dead heart. Jesus also used very similar language when he talked to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. Which is why Paul just comes out with it sometimes, like he does in Ephesians 2, and says, You are dead in your trespasses and sins. And Paul has already mentioned a, a, a major effect of that deadening power of sin in us. When, did he not just say in verse 9, or, or excuse me, in uh, verse 11, excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 10, none is righteous, not one. Look at verse 
11, no one seeks for God. Nobody seeks after God. It might appear that way, but it's not in fact God that they're seeking. Paul's going to say in Romans 10 that the Jews had a zeal for God a zeal for righteousness, but it was not according to knowledge. They were just trying to establish their own righteousness. They weren't actually seeking after God. Paul's going to say the same thing in Romans 8 when he says, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh, he says, cannot please God. That's strong. The deadening power of sin in our hearts, apart from God's grace, produces in us total inability, spiritually, apart from grace. It's not just that we don't seek for God. Romans 8 says we can't. And you'll notice down in verse 18 in our passage that Paul, at the end of that that long list of quotations, Paul grounds this sober, sobering view of of us and our sin. He grounds all that in this truth in verse 18, quoting Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And if you took the time in your Bible study, which any time, by the way, I always put in the group me what the text is for the next day and say, read it ahead of time, read it while you're standing in line at the Auburn game. Or read it in the second half of the Auburn game because there's everything going on. But anyway, uh, but when you come to passages like this and there, or any passage where there, there's an Old Testament quotation here, why don't you put your bookmark in your Bible or just note the place on your phone and go back to that Old Testament passage and read it. Read it in its context and see why was Paul or whoever quoting that passage. And if you did that here with all of these, you'll see a repeated theme throughout these passages. So in verses 10 to 12, he he quotes Psalm 14. He doesn't quote this, this particular line here in this passage, but the very first words of of Psalm 14 is, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In verse 13, he quotes Psalm 5. And if you read Psalm 5, David, the psalmist, says of the wicked, it is the fear of God that they lack. That's in Psalm 5. In verse 14, he quotes Psalm 10 uh, in, in, in that passage. And if you read Psalm 10, again, the wicked is the, in Psalm 10 saying there is no God. In verse 15, he quotes Proverbs 1. Their feet are swift to shed blood, that whole, that whole passage. But what is, what's a famous verse in Proverbs 1? Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he concludes it in, Psalm, in verse 18, Psalm 36, there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the person dead in their sins. No fear of God, living as if there is no God, certainly doesn't seek after God, can't because you don't want to. You don't feel like you need to. Dead. That is every person apart from the grace of God. The power of sin is universal. It's deadening. But the third thing that Paul indicates about uh, sin's power in this series of Old Testament quotes is that it is corrupting. It goes from bad to worse. In verses 13 and 14, Paul seems to 
indicate the, the power sin has over our words. You see that in there? After their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive. Venom of asps under their lips. Mouth is full of curses and bitterness. We call that social media. Verses 15 to 17, Paul indicates the power sin has over uh, our actions and the damage and the misery sin causes. Think about the imagery. Even, even if it's not always literal, and it is, in fact, sadly literal, but even when it's not, just the imagery that these verses conjure up, shedding blood, ruin, misery, not knowing the way of peace. I mean, it, Paul is just not, he's just laying it out there. And why, why belabor this point for so long? And, I, and I'm not talking about me. Why does Paul belabor this point for so long? Why would Paul stress this point about the power of sin in us and over us so strongly? Again, we can only see the fullness and the beauty of our salvation to the extent that we can see the plight that we are in apart from it. In the, in the next point, we're going, to talk, we're going to talk about the penalty of sin uh, for just a second. He does touch on that. But it seems like uh, more times than not, when we think about the gospel, when we share the gospel with someone, it's the penalty of sin that gets all the focus. As if, and if, if the penalty of sin is all we talk about, it could be as if we stand guilty before God and we're just looking and grasping for a, for a, hoping for a way out. But that's not the biblical picture at all. Because sin doesn't merely bring a penalty. It's a power in us. It's a power over us. We stand guilty before God and we don't care. We don't believe it. When we, when we realize the depth of our plight, especially the power of sin that sin has over us, deadening us to God and corrupting us, it helps us to see the extent uh, of the gracious lengths God goes to save any sinner. The old hymn, Rock of Ages, had it right. When it, when it sings, pleading the, 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 the blood of Christ to... To be of sin, the double cure. Save from wrath, that's penalty, and make me pure. That's power. To know very clearly the power of sin in our hearts is, is also, or should be, to know, it may sound counterintuitive, but to know that power of sin and its effects in your heart, it ought to be a great comfort to Christians who struggle with assurance. Um, because most people who struggle with assurance that I talk to, who come to me, I'm doubting, I'm doubting, I'm struggling, I'm doubting, I'm doubting, and I, I struggle with assurance. Most people that I talk to deeply want to be right with God. Deeply want to be right with God and to know it. Which Scripture so clearly says here that apart from grace, you do not do. You don't do it. You don't seek for God. You don't desire that apart from His grace. So the fact that you do, I want to know, I want to know, that in itself is evidence of God's grace in you. 
But we need to move forward in the passage beyond this first and main point of the text. And note that Paul also does draw attention to the penalty of sin in verse 19. Look at that with me quickly. Paul says in verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. That's an interesting verse because on the one hand, the main point seems incredibly easy to see. But on the other hand, if you look carefully at the verse, the details of how he got to that place seem less so. Because we've been saying that Paul is dealing universally here, and not just Jews or Gentiles, but all of us, all people. And he does eventually get there in verse 19, again, when he talks about every mouth in the whole world. But he begins the verse saying, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Who's under the law? Jews. The, the law here is the law of Moses, and the Jews were the ones who were under the law. So what he's, he's basically saying that the Jews being under the law, Jews being held accountable to the law, somehow makes everybody. I mean, like, how does Jews being under the law and Jews being accountable to God mean, therefore, that the whole world is accountable to God and every mouth will be stopped? That's what he's saying. How does Paul make that leap? Uh, one of my former pastors and professors, Tom Schreiner, I think really makes sense of that thought process when he, he writes, if the Jews who had the privilege of being God's covenant and elect people, if they couldn't keep the law, then no one can, including the Gentiles. And I think, Paul, I think that is in keeping with Paul's argument in these whole first three chapters. He's already argued that because of the power of sin in our hearts, both Gentiles and Jews have misused the revelation that God gave to them. And because all are sinners, all are capable of the sins of the other. Which brings him to his point, that the whole world is accountable to God in their sin. And on that day, standing before him, there will be nothing to say in defense. Every mouth will be stopped. But one more thing to note here, and it's that phrase, held accountable. The whole world will be held accountable to God, which as it is stated in this English translation, could leave the impression that, well, we're going to stand before God and see what happens. I'm going to be held accountable. What's going to happen? But the phrase that Paul used here when he wrote it in, 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 in the original language, is actually a bit stronger than that. Um, it implies not only that we're going to be held accountable, but the guilty verdict has already been handed down. We're just going to receive what we've got coming to us. Already pronounced guilty. Which is exactly, by the way, what Jesus said in John 3. Jesus said, the one who does not believe is condemned already is condemned already. So Paul has summarized here his point in these first three chapters thus far by laying out the basic Christian doctrine of sin. That sin is a power in us, a power over us that deadens us to God, that corrupts us, and that for those sins that we therefore commit out of that corruption and deadness, we stand guilty before God. But Paul has one more thing to say as he ends this passage. One with one more truth. 
which also uh, serves as a transition uh, to the gospel, finally, that he's going to bring in next week's passage. Think with me quickly as we come to a close about the purpose of the law. So in verse 20, the last verse of our passage, Paul introduces an, a very important word. It's a word that is going to dominate the next few chapters of Romans. And it's that word justified. Justified. Paul begins that verse saying, For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, as I said, this is going to dominate the next several chapters. So we're going to have plenty of time to review this later. But it would certainly be right for us here to make sure we have at least a basic grasp of what he means by that word, justified. Justified or justification uh, was a legal term in that day, a law court term. It was the word that a judge would use the, the favorable verdict. It was the favorable verdict a judge would declare over defendant. It, it's not exactly like the today a judge would say, not guilty. It was that, but it was more than that in that day. Uh, justification had two, had, had two, has two aspects to it. One, on the one hand, it is the declaration to a defendant, not guilty. Not guilty. But on the other hand, it is also a declaration that the defendant is righteous. It's not just that you're not guilty. It's you're, you're righteous. You are in the right. And Paul picks up on that and sees that also as describing our need before God. When we stand before God, we need both of those things to be true. If we are to have any hope, we need, yes, to be not guilty for our sins. But if, 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 my, if my sinful slate is simply wiped clean, I'm still a blank slate and have nothing to commend myself to God. I actually need righteousness as well. I don't just need to be not guilty. I need to be righteous. Right? Um, in other words, I don't need to be just somebody who never sinned. I need to be somebody who always obeyed. And the person who has never sinned, and the person who has always obeyed in God's sight, that's a person who is justified. The problem is, that's none of us. In fact, there's, there's only one for whom that was true. You'll hear about him next week. Hint, it's Jesus. But Paul says, in verse 20, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. He's saying that people who by default might want through, through, through supposed acts of righteousness or obedience or however they conceive of that, if they try to earn a favorable verdict from God, Paul says that's foolish. We've already sinned and so we are neither not guilty nor righteous. And so someone might ask them, well, why did God give us the law if we couldn't keep it? If we... Why did he give us the law if we couldn't if we can do what it said and earn his favor? Paul tells us in the second half of verse 20. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let me just say this quickly. In there in in, in, the, in Christian teaching, there are three uh, uses of the law. Um, the first one Paul mentions here. 
the first use of the law is to make us aware of our sin. I mean, you, you have a law, and you see over and over again, you don't keep it. It makes you aware that you're a sinner, right? The, and, and the more we read his commands, the more we are aware of how often we don't do it. We're, that's the first use, to make us aware of our sin. The second use is now being aware of our sin, it is, it, it is used to lead us to Christ. It is to make us start looking for a Savior. Uh, and, we lead, and it leads us to Christ who kept that law in our place. And through repentance of faith, we can be justified by His works, not ours. And the third is, once we come to Christ, the law and the commands of God are still good, a good picture of what it looks like to obey Him. But Paul makes clear that first use in, his, in this passage, because again, the, the point of this section in Romans is to hammer home how sinful we are and how hopeless and destitute we are apart from Christ. And when you come to the passage next week, Paul will not only have thoroughly prepared you for verse 23, which is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but he will have also very much prepared you for the next verse that we can be justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Let me just close by saying this. You have to take a thorough accounting of the bad news for the good news to appear good to you when you hear it. And I think we're ready for it by this point. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this, uh, this precious word. It's precious. It's, it's hard. It's it is uh, unflinching. It is unrelenting. We are, we are broken sinners by nature. Sin uh, is true for everyone. It, it, apart from your grace, it deadens us to you. <coughs> it, it corrupts us. We don't have a way out on our own. We can't, we can't dig our way out. We can't climb out. Nor The sad thing is we don't even want to. We don't even feel that we need to. But until your grace comes, uh, makes us aware of our sin through the law, through the help of the Holy Spirit, it's through that and the, the desperation we feel in ourselves that causes us to come running to Christ. So, Lord, I pray uh, that uh, for the, those of us here this morning, even this sobering word about our sinfulness would somehow be a very encouraging word that keeps us coming to Christ. And I pray also, as I mentioned earlier, for those who may struggle with assurance, that they would see this passage and say, you know, that's right. Apart from grace, I don't seek for God. I don't even have a desire in me to be right with God. So this intense desire that I'm feeling is actually a good sign of God's grace. Lord, thank you for this good word in Jesus' name. Amen.